have recently made the move into bro tanks, but only athletic bro tanks. I won't wear like cotton ones. They're they're great. I uh I can bench two to three times as much as I could just two weeks ago. It really has made me feel better. And I was running in one, and I was like, man, like I'm being slowed down by these giant guns I'm carrying with me. Good evening, Syntac listeners. This is the Syntac Podcast. I'm Fernando. I'm Ethan. And I'm Matt. And today we are going to talk about game theory. And for a while, game theory, I thought, was one of those classic economists' uh, pet topics that was very nice to discuss in this nice academic clear-cut box, but had no real application outside of that. And it definitely became a lot more interesting to me as I educated myself on it and learned that it has, or at least the background of it, has applications in the real world and can be used in understanding how we think and how we make decisions. Um, So Matt, do you want to give us a quick definition of what game theory is exactly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So game theory um, originally is a model of um, what... what, um, economists call a game, but a situation where you have uh, a number of rational actors that are trying to maximize their utility uh, based off certain decisions they make um, and combining those decisions with with the decisions of other actors. So there could be certain payouts for certain decisions um, that uh, that they and they're trying to maximize for those payouts. So um, that's kind of in a nutshell what game theory originally was created to be. But when we talk about game theory now, um, and this is something that in preparing for this podcast, uh, we spent a lot of time discussing, um, game theory kind of encompasses in the way it's used in society and in different articles, but a lot of different, um, just any kind of, uh, model of decision-making game theory tends to, uh, be used as kind of like a heading to cover that. So when people talk about game theory today, it kind of extends beyond that initial set game, um, that was in place. So we're going to kind of blur the lines across, um, some of those things, Ethan might be a little bit more strict on on the original definition, but I think we'll we'll kind of uh, spread out amongst um, kind of the the options and alternatives within that broad set of game theory. Yeah, like Matt said, um, game theory, what game theory encompasses, has changed over time, and people disagree on what counts as a application of game theory and what doesn't. Um, it took a while for the three of us to reach a consensus on it, and I'm not entirely certain that we have. We'll find out. But Ethan, you want to tell us a little bit about the development of game theory and maybe a little bit of how it came to be kind of this multi-headed beast, fluffy, so to speak? Yeah, so, I mean, this is not an area I'm an expert on, but but to be brief about it, um, this guy who was basically involved in everything in the 40s, and I think even before the 40s, his name was John von Neumann. He was Hungarian-American. Um basically worked out the beginnings of game theory as like a little bit more mathy and graphical than it is now. Um, much more, as I understand it, uh, more about like points on a graph and how to optimize individual outcomes. And in 1944, he wrote a book um, with this guy named Oscar Morgenstern called Theory of Games and Economic Behavior. So that is, I think, if you can point to a single thing where there's like a name applied and there's a science behind it, that's like the beginning of game theory. Um, this starts to gain a little bit of popularity in the field, but it really became more important when this guy named John Nash 
um, the movie The Beautiful Mind or A Beautiful Mind is based on John Nash's life. John Nash solved for a particular problem that hadn't been answered yet in game theory. And that solution was called Nash Equilibrium. Nash Equilibrium basically says if all the players of the game are able to uh, stick with their choice with no detrimental effects, so there's no incentive for anybody to change their choices right now based on what all the other players are doing, then you're in a form of equilibrium because nothing is going to change. And it got named after John Nash, um, Nash Equilibrium. Side note for anybody who's seen the movie, they totally butcher that concept, so ignore that. Anyway, um, later in the 1900s, game theory gets more popular as a way of describing economic systems. And in the late uh, 1900s and early 2000s, it actually catches on in biology as a good way to model certain biological systems. And there's a, there's a quote here that I wrote down. Ironically, um, it turned out to be very successful in biology. And uh, I may not... Oh, yeah, pa- here it is. Paradoxically, it has turned out the game theory is more readily applied to biology than to the field of economic behavior for which it was originally designed. Uh, a guy named Maynard Smith said that. So, yeah, game theory has turned out to be applicable in a number of fields that aren't necessarily what you would expect. But originally, it was an economic model of rational actors, like Matt said. But from what you said, which I didn't know, it was developed really by like a relatively pure mathematician rather than by economists, as I had assumed. Um, yeah, well, John Nash was a mathematician, too. Um, game theory is like some of the mathiest econ. I don't know, Matt, you're the economist. You can, you can tell me if I'm wrong. But I think game theory falls right on the math edge of economics in general. It may be the more, most, uh, most abstractly mathy. Uh, where the others are you know, pretty math heavy but have a much more direct outcome from a macroeconomic lens where this is like really abstract stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, um, so we can maybe start by talking about a very classic example of game theory, the prisoner's dilemma, which is a topic that is thrown around probably more frequently than it should be. I definitely saw it a lot before really understanding anything about it. Um, so the prisoner's dilemma is a kind of classic situation where you have two players deciding whether they should cooperate or let's uh, let's make the other. players me and matt i think in all the games matt and i should be the players so describe it as us as the prisoners as long as i win well you have to decide <laughs> well we all know we know how this ends but so matt, <laughs> matt and ethan are our prisoners and they are being given the option to either cooperate with the i'm gonna explain this poorly to either cooperate with the investigators turn on the other person or to not give information on the other person and what their decision is as well as what the other person's decision is affects what sentence they will receive so Um, i don't have it all written down so someone who does should explain i can finish it off but also to put it in context imagine um matt and i uh work together to rob a bank (laughs) and so we we've been caught but there's no footage of us actually robbing the bank. So the police are in a predicament, and it's hard. It's going to be hard for them to get a guilty uh, verdict on either one of us if one of us doesn't confess. So the situation is this. If neither of us confess, the police are going to be able to get us both on small convictions, something along the lines of um, assault, because they know we like beat up a guard or something. And we're each going to go to prison for two years. 
If one of us confesses and the other does not, then the one who confesses will get off for free because the police are looking to make a bargain, basically. But the other one is going to get life. That's the alternative. So if the other person rats you out and you don't rat, you are going to prison for life. And if you both rat each other out, then you're both going to prison for 20 years. So if you think about this, the optimal solution in general is that both of us keep our mouths shut. We each go to prison for two years and like compared to going to prison for life, not that bad. Compared to going to prison for 20 years, not that bad. The worst situation is we both rat each other out and we both go to prison for 20 years. The problem with this situation is that for me, I don't know what Matt's going to do, but my decision doesn't affect him. It doesn't affect what he'll do because we're making these decisions separately. And so in my mind, I can think if Matt decides to confess, then if I also confess, then we both go to prison for 20 years. And if I don't confess, then Matt is going to get off for free and I'm going to prison for life. So my better option is to confess. Separately, if Matt doesn't confess, then he goes to prison, or rather, um, if I also don't confess when he didn't confess, we both go to prison for two years. Or I could confess, and I could get off for free, and Matt could go to prison for life. But it doesn't affect me. So in both situations, it's better for me to confess. And Matt is exactly in the same position. So both of us will confess if we don't have the opportunity to communicate, and we're purely rational actors. And this is the nature of the prisoner's dilemma, that things converge to a bad outcome for both people, even though there's an opportunity to cooperate. That's why it gets brought up a lot in game theory, because it's kind of interesting that you can have a situation like that. Okay, sorry for rambling. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think that's a pretty straightforward explanation. Um, where I've seen it probably most recently um, in kind of a straightforward manner, I don't know if any of you guys saw... Um, or if, if any of our listeners saw that uh, that game that 538 had you play on their website where you could, um, this was like right at the beginning of kind of the, the nuclear, uh, the beginning of the nuclear talks that Trump and Kim Jong-un were uh, about to partake in, but um, that you could be paired with a random person. And the idea was that um, you could either, there was a number of different strategies, but but in, in an essence, the game was like, you could either show strength or you could show weakness. And so in, when it comes to nuclear strategy, uh, nuclear strategy tends to play out in a similar way because um, if and, and this would be an iterative game, right? So like if you showed strength in nuclear talks, you're going to do that uh, maybe for one game and then you're going to have the opportunity to to show strength or show weakness for the next game. So they tend to iterate um, and they build on each other. But if you have um, a game where there are two people, we'll go Matt and Ethan again. Um, and Matt decides to show strength that he says, like, I'm not afraid that I will nuke Ethan and Ethan, uh, independently decides that he is also going to show strength. Then, uh, both people will be showing strength and outcome. And if you iterate that over time, um, that will have a very negative output for all of us. We will all lose, uh, because it will start a nuclear war. Um, but if one of us shows strength and the other shows weakness, there is a not as high of a benefit, but there's still a benefit to the person who shows strength and the person who um, shows weakness uh, is at a loss. And then if both of us show weakness, there is uh, really no benefit or loss to anyone, but each person is kind of deciding on their own. Um, and there is, you know, in that regard, it was kind of this idea of like, is Trump acting rationally by showing strength? And there was kind of an argument he made that like independently, uh, 
the incentives aligned in a way that it wouldn't be completely irrational in certain situations to promote strength. So that's kind of the, the nuclear theory uh, piece is kind of where I've seen this most probably lately. Yeah. And I feel like it, it probably directly parlays to prisoner's theory more than or a prisoner's dilemma more than like some of the other ones that are on top of my head. So I feel like I was going to throw this one out first. I but, agree. The, the yeah. games editor on 538, the guy who writes the puzzles for every Friday, his name's Oliver Rader. And he, he is a PhD in economics with a specialty in game theory. So it's no surprise he's interested in this. Oh. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I didn't say that was like a really poor use of game theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he, he's uh, oh, written wow. before about how um, being unpredictable before nuclear negotiations could be a big benefit because if you're perceived as unpredictable, um, the other person is sort of reduced to that more conservative strategy, possibly. I mean, you, you can't know for sure here, but he has postulated that before, which I think is interesting. But on the other hand, game theory, it's important that if you commit to something, you follow through on it, especially in what you described, Matt, repeated games. It's important that people can trust what you say you'll do because otherwise they will punish you in the next iteration of the game. And Raider's point on that is that if you um, renege on your decisions in one round or you're unreliable, which is like something you could say about Trump, then that really hurts you in negotiations. Helps you up to that point, but once you get in actual negotiations, if people can't trust your word, that's hard to make a deal with. Right. So I think what you're saying, right, is that your actions won't have the predictable effect that you can bank on um, if in the past you have proved yourself to be unreliable or your threats to be unfounded, right? Yeah. So this whole theory of repeated games basically enforces some kind of, um, you know, honesty is the wrong word, but uh, goodwill. Consistency, Consistency and, and also goodwill because there's an opportunity for the other player to punish you when you punish them, basically. So if we replay the prisoner's dilemma many times, something different would happen. What I described where we converge to an outcome that's bad for everyone, um, if I had the opportunity to punish Matt for ratting me out, then Matt probably would be less likely to do that. And so you become more likely to converge to a positive outcome in these repeated games, generally. And and that goes back to Nash equilibrium, too, because to achieve a Nash equilibrium, you have to iterate on these games, right? Because you have to be able to be in a position where uh, each person is not... So, so Nash equilibrium is defined as an equilibrium where each individual person... Um, does not gain anything by, uh, given given else's decisions, does not gain any more utility by changing their decision. Um, so to be able to get to a point where you have like a default, like, hey, we have decided this um, so that the person knows what the other actor's decisions are, you would have to iterate on those games and have repeated games uh, because like in, the, in a single prisoner's dilemma, um, there wouldn't be like a default Nash equilibrium that someone would be able to defer from. There, there is technically. I, so it's it depends though, because what you're describing is like a, a positive Nash equilibrium where people don't know other actors' payouts. But if if um, both prisoners know each other's payouts in the prisoner's dilemma, it is still technically a Nash equilibrium because I understand what you're going to do because we know each other's payouts. But it's important that you know okay, the payoffs so, for that to work. Right, So because the, the Nash equilibrium applies in a single instance because if the, the Nash equilibrium in the prisoner's dilemma is for both people to rat on the other prisoner, and it's a Nash equilibrium because if one of the actors chooses to change, they get screwed, right? And essentially the equivalent of the Nash equilibrium is there's no incentive for any one of them to change given the other player's de decisions staying where they're at. 
because yeah. they, they would benefit if they could both commit to changing. Um, and honestly, if if you could iterate, I wonder would if it would converge to to both uh, choosing not to confess. Maybe more, not. It's more likely. There's no guarantee, but it is more likely you'd get to that point, especially in the prisoner's dilemma, repeated games. But actually, Nash's contribution, I guess I, I probably misdescribed it earlier, saying that he invented Nash Equilibrium. He actually proved that every game has a mixed strategy Nash Equilibrium. He proved every game where the, the information is uh, known to everyone has uh, Nash Equilibrium. And we can, maybe this is a good chance to launch into what mixed strategy is. So Yeah, just one last point on the nuclear deterrence. I think nuclear deterrence is a really interesting and informative application of game theory because it's one situation where like it's one real life human situation where the payouts are easy to describe as like universally good or universally bad yeah um whereas like in a lot of political science or economics there's there's more subjectivity in it where like even if whereas most people would agree that like initiating nuclear war is a generally bad payout and yeah that allows the quantitative analysis of game theory to be applied relatively cleanly. Actually, we should uh, we should talk about a couple more examples before we go into mixed strategies because there are similar things to that that are a little bit easier to understand that maybe make sense. So one thing I think is interesting is, um, I, I took game theory in college, it's been a while though. My teacher brought up this idea of why countries with two political parties typically have two surprisingly similar political parties. And this is probably not obvious to most people in America, but like the stances of Democrats and Republicans are not really that different compared to the stances of parties in other countries. And one of the reasons for this is this is simplistic, but you can assume that everybody in America falls along um, a linear scale of conservative to liberal. And wherever each party positions itself, the other party gets a chance to position itself and everybody chooses the party closer to them on that line. So maybe one party chooses right in the middle and one chooses like three quarters of the way or they both choose the ends. And you might think that the parties would choose the ends and then split the voters, but that's not like an optimal situation for the party. Um, the best thing that can happen is a party can have uh, Basically, they, they can move to capture more of the free voters. So if I chose my one party to be at the very end, the other party might choose to be dead in the middle of the line because they'll capture three quarters of the people. Everybody to the left of that will go with that party and halfway to the other point will go with that party also. So what you end up with is two parties that end up right in the middle of the line so they get as close to, to each other as possible and split the voters. Everybody on the right gets one half and everybody on the left gets the other half. And you get these very similar parties counterintuitively. Um, and I think like you were saying, Fernando, it's kind of interesting that certain really macro games actually play out in more game theoretic ways than individual ones. And I think part of that is that large entities that have a lot of people working together in a bureaucracy actually force themselves to look at payouts more rationally than individuals do. Like I don't write down a list of the pros and cons of buying bananas this week at the store. Although I should, I like, I would love to implement game theory. I would life. see you doing that. Sure. But most people do not do that. Well, so one, one thing that's interesting to add on the tail end of that is like, if you think about the current uh, political climate we're in now, um, with the nation becoming more, I would say more sympathetic towards liberal leaning ideologies, given that how unpopular, uh, 
our president is at, at the, the current moment in his presidency. Um, but like the, the rational response to that from like the Democratic Party is to question whether or not they should move further left. And so that's kind of like an ideological thing um, that that you see like the Democratic Party wrestling with is like, should we shift further left? And it's to continue to match um continue to match like this this middle ground where they can maximize the number of voters they appeal to because right now the environment the political environment is shifting at least more maybe not left per se but more towards uh democratic leaning uh, uh people there was an article um article on 538 today about how abortion stances actually don't line up as well with party preferences as one might think. And one of the questions brought up was, would it benefit one of the parties to actually move to a more centrist position on abortion? Because even though it would offend many of the people like in that party's camp, like where are they going to go? They're not going to vote for the other party. Like that's worse. So I think that's uh, that's really interesting to think about, especially as the political climate changes and a lot of views that parties have had historically are in flux. What was the uh, what was the conclusion on that article? Uh, whether they should, I mean, from a game theory perspective, yeah, but there's no like, there's no definitive answer because it's possible you would disenfranchise people who are attached to your party and they might just not show up to vote at all. Yeah, I think like, uh, we've maybe seen that there's another, another factor. It's not just your appeal to voters, but it's also your desire to remain in the good graces of your party, which might dissuade individual politicians from moving towards a stance that might garner them more voters all other things being equal but they might receive less backing from their fellow party members yeah that's why the parties aren't actually right next to each other i mean they are meaningfully different in in many ways and it's because people vote on ideologies and like distancing yourself ideologically from people can cause real damage and they might not want to vote well what's what's interesting about that point you brought up earlier is like and maybe, maybe I'm misinterpreting this, but I would think that, and, and this might be a little bit of a deviation here, but that on the right, like I, I know many people who would identify themselves, and I hear people identify themselves as single-issue voters on the right that are centered around this issue. But I don't know if I hear that as, and, and maybe this might, but does that exist as much on the left around this issue? And if so, like it would make possibly more sense if you were trying to appeal to more people based on this issue to kind of fall through with what 538 was talking about there if you're on the left. But it doesn't necessarily make sense to me that that would really benefit you, given that that is such a central issue to, like, and it could be, like, the only central issue to a lot of non-political people yeah. on the right. I, I mean, they, I think it's impossible to get quite to that level of detail with a purely data-driven approach, but um, I think they said one-sixth of Democrats are not very happy with the Democratic Democratic Party's stance on abortion, and one-third of Republicans are not happy with the Republican Party's stance. But you can almost, like, backtrack from there and say, well, why are the stances so hard? And it's because there's a very small percentage of Democrats that are really attached to it, and there's a large percentage of Republicans that are attached to it. Um, Largely because the Christian right rose in, like, the 70s, I think, they brought up. I'm not sure the exact time. And so that drove the Republican Party to very pro, uh, pro-life. pro And then there was a response from like women's activist groups in the Democratic Party a little bit after that. And that is a smaller group of people, actually, but drove the Democratic Party to be the mirror image. We could go way down a rabbit hole here, but it was pretty interesting. I would recommend it. Oh, I, uh, I forgot to mention something in the history of game theory. The first known game theory uh, to like happen in any writing is by this guy named Charles Waldegrave. And he wrote a letter to his uncle, and he used a strategy called Minimax, 
which is to say minimizing your maximum loss, so limiting your downside, uh, to describe the optimal play in a card game called Lahur, which I've never heard of. Lowercase e, lowercase l e, capital H, lowercase e r. Lahur. So game theory, guys. Which is, I believe is French for the her. The her. I think you're right. But I saw that that um, that was like in the 1700s or something. Yeah, that was really old. We read. We both read this from Wikipedia. Yeah, where else do we research? Um, right. And I think that kind of goes to show that like a lot of what we've talked about game theory now, which is true of like a lot of branches of math and economics, is just kind of formalized approach to analysis. It's not like no one has analyzed decision making prior to von yeah. Neumann and Nash. It's also generalizing strategies that appear to be suited for one specific study, in this case, like a card game, to the world and like specifically like biological simulations, which is crazy. Well, one of, so one of the uh, one of the things that's ex- exceptionally challenging um, with really applying game theory to real life situations is this idea. Like we've talked about a payout, and in these like really siloed situations, like we can say what a payout is for prisoners' dilemma, and which the payouts are, which one's better. We might struggle a little bit with how much better each one is, but we can we can uh, definitively say what areas of those lives or of their lives are affected, and say which one's better and which one's worse. When you get outside that zone, it gets a lot murkier. And so defining like all the different things um, that can be affected by payouts, whether good or bad, and to turn that into like one number is really like one of the great challenges of really applying game theory in any real life situation because it tends to have so many more effects than just uh, something that you might see in the prisoner's dilemma. So I think that's kind of one like reservation people tend to have when it comes to game theory that like just quantifying a payout. I mean, it's is utility so in economics in general. Right. This this problem is not unique to unique to game theory. Anything where you need a number on utility is just hard. Yeah, but but the the difference would be is that like you you are quantifying like a change in utility based off of like individual decision making. So not only do you have to define like a, like a current utility, you have to say like what will this one outcome affect like every one of these things that may go into like this over idea of overall utility. So I think it even compounds the difficulty of of the, the vagueness and ambiguity yeah. surrounding That's a very good utility. point, yeah. One, uh, one other example I was gonna bring up, which is like a simpler version of the political parties converging, is <clears throat> imagine if you have a one road town where you have a bunch of people living along this one road and uh, there's two gas stations gonna be built here. Like some two rich families have decided they're gonna make money off this town of like 50 people by building gas stations. So this is much more obvious when you think about it, that the best situation for each gas station is to move as close to the middle as possible because everybody just goes to the closer gas station if they're the same price. And then you end up with these two gas stations right in the middle of town, which actually is like terrible for consumers. Like you want them to be farther apart for convenience. But one of the gas stations is going to move right in the middle and say like, this is our best place to capture as many people as possible. And the other one is going to move right next to them and say then we can also capture as many people as possible. And this is a bad situation for consumers, but the optimal outcome for people uh, running the business. And it's the same as political parties. Anyway, just wanted to bring that back up. It's weird that when you say things like that, like it, that seems like a very like, clear, simple thing. And every time you say something like that, I'm like, wow, that, that really makes sense. I, I have not thought about it like that, which I guess is really uh, an adaptation <laughs> of game theory that's super helpful when you kind of have those like, ah, yeah, okay, yeah. So I think game theory gets a bad rap. It's like sounds complicated, and when you look at strategics, um, if people have ever seen strategics, they're like those grids that have comma-separated numbers in them that explain the payouts for people. It's like the picture of game theory in general. It looks so much more complicated than it is. I mean, that's the hallmark of mathematicians, right? Representing things in a way that makes it as intimidating as possible for outsiders. But 
But the thing with game theory strategics is, like, they are the most efficient way to represent it, so far as I can tell. But, like, Greek letters? Who came up with Greek letters? I have such a beef with mathematicians. Like, everything should be written in pseudocode, because it's procedural. But Greek letters are like, we use this funny symbol to indicate that you should multiply all these numbers together. Ah, kills me. Comes up at work a lot. Do, do we want to dive a little bit into the topic of game theory in biology? Because I believe there was a Nobel Prize handed out for that in like the 70s or 80s um, about applying game theory to biology, which seems super counterintuitive. I don't know if either of you read into that at all. So, no, not really. I know just a tiny bit about it, but if either of you know anything about it, you should talk. Yeah, I think you're talking about, what is it, the Mendel's... Uh... <laughs> the beans? <laughs> I don't know. That is yeah. also a square, I, to be uh, sure. I have no idea what the game theory is. <laughs> the, my understanding was um, it was used for something in evolution, for, like, what what's a strategy for mating and reproduction? I don't really know enough about it to speak intelligently, so I guess we should just refer people to other resources, which is namely Wikipedia. But uh, <laughs> we know it happened. We know it happened, and it's useful. So you should believe that game theory is handy. Right. So the example that Wikipedia cites is that, like, most species converge to a male-to-female sex ratio of one-to-one, and, like, there is an equal probability of a child being um, male and fe- versus female, and then equality in the number of males and females allows you to maximize reproduction. And I guess like, which makes sense, what I don't particularly understand about it is to me, it's not a treatment of rational decision makers. Um, it's a treatment of like random mutations over time converging to the most stable um, outcome. My suspicion would be that they're treating the individual species and like like styles of reproduction as players and they see who wins the game and like what the optimal strategy is if you're choosing between male and female to win the game because in some sense that is evolution like like the winners are the ones with the best strategies even if it's not like a cognizant being so that that's my guess but we don't yeah we should a listener should read up on it and uh, (laughs) get back to us on that one so, uh, so Ethan, do you you were saying you were an expert in another form of game theory? You wanted to, uh, in fact, I believe it's the field that uh, gave it the name "quote game theory." <laughs> yeah. So these guys have have heard me talk their ears off about how interesting I think it is that um, you can you can pretty accurately describe a lot of dating apps as game theory. So let's start uh, with the dating app Tinder. And if you're not familiar with it, I will give you a 30-second rundown. In Tinder, you're shown pictures of other people you might want to match with. Um, And you set early on, like, am I interested in men or women? And then other people who are interested in your sex, who meet your qualification, will be shown to you. You will see one to six pictures of them, and you will decide from those pictures whether you want to like them, that's thumbs up, or dislike them, thumbs down. Sounds a little harsh, but basically what you're saying is like, if I had the opportunity to chat with this person, I would or I would not. If you like them, you swipe to the right. If you don't like them, you swipe to the left. If you and the other person both say yes to each other over some period of time, because you're shown to each other pseudo-randomly, you are connected and you have the opportunity to chat. And that's how you actually meet people. So this is actually an extremely 
clean game theory, right? So, so we were just talking earlier about how hard it is to define payoffs because games are complicated and like there's a lot of externalities. But in meeting people on a dating app, like the the payoffs are a lot clearer, right? Like meeting somebody you like is good, and meeting somebody you don't like is bad, especially if it means like you have a bad date or you're like you're frightened by them or something. Like these are clear bad outcomes, and there's clear good outcomes. So. Uh, I should also introduce this problem that many people perceive with um, with Tinder, which is basically that men have a hard time getting matches and women get tons of matches. So maybe women swipe through 100 people and get 60 matches and men swipe through 100 people and get like 15. Uh, and actually, you can figure out why this happens using game theory principles. So if you start the game and you say, like, women are slightly more selective than men and both are, in general, 50-50 on whether they like or dislike people, then maybe women are a little more selective and they like 45% of people and men like 55% of people. Now, what happens early on is women notice they get slightly more matches than they might expect. And so they get a little more selective because they say, it takes time to go through these matches and I can afford to be more selective because there's many people that are matching with me. So let me just trim it down a little bit and I'll get a little bit pickier. And then men, on the other hand, as the women adjust, start to get less selective. And they say, well, like I would rather filter the people out on the back end and get less selective. And after I match with them, then I'll figure out if I like them or not. I'll just say like anybody who looks like they might be okay, I'll swipe right on and I'll deal with it later. So suddenly women are swiping less and men are swiping more. And that causes women to swipe less again and get more selective because now they have all this spam from men who are who are like desperate to get matches. And men have to swipe more often. And all of a sudden, you end up with a situation where men are way, way less selective than women are and get way fewer matches for the number of people they swipe through. And this is like a real problem with Tinder. And it's interesting because the designers probably should have anticipated this if they knew much about game theory and about just like human sexual selection like women tend to be more selective than men so here we are and like tinder has a result of a pretty bad game theory equilibrium yeah and i think the interesting takeaway there is that like even though it may seem like a big disparity in selectiveness what ethan just kind of explained is that the seemingly big disparities can stem even from a if the natural state is only a very small difference in like a 45 to 55 as you said yeah, so I, I just I just have a quick follow up question there. I Ethan, could you just give like a specific example here of how this device? Uh, I don't. I don't think I I'm can just kidding. What were you gonna say? Um, what I was gonna say is, you know, this whole problem that Tinder suffers from is predicated on the idea that you get to choose how many people you can swipe through, and so. Especially for women, they say, uh, I will just swipe through fewer people. And for men, they say, like, well, I can get less selective and swipe through more people. And so you can actually cut down on the problem if you limit the number of people you can swipe on. And Tinder does this, but the limit is like 150 or something. Like, it's some really large number. I'm not even sure it's static. On the other hand, there are apps that have taken it, this into account. And there's one called Coffee Meets Bagel. And in this app, you are shown a certain number of people, usually less than 10, each day. And that means that you are much less likely to get frustrated by too many or too few matches. Maybe too few matches, but there's very, very low probability of anybody in the situation ending up with too many. And so nobody gets artificially less selective. And so Coffee Meets Bagel, when I used to be on dating apps, I found actually had a much better chance of me matching with people than, um, 
than Tinder did because apparently the women weren't getting more selective as time went on. So game theory helps us design social apps. Maybe uh, maybe women just don't get more selective with people. Maybe we can't it. be sure. We need a randomized study. Sample size of one. Um, so, uh, but uh, you know, so I think I think what we're we're bringing home here is um, is kind of why game theory could matter in your everyday life and why it's important to think about. And I didn't really think about this. Or I, I forgot about this until we're doing this pod <laughs> right now. But not only can not only can can game theory is it important for um, for the dating app scene, it's also important oh. for the offline dating scene for uh, those of us who are grandpa. So <laughs> I I forgot that I was putting this. Uh, this is just going to get anecdotal here. Well, what was worth, mine? <laughs> it's worth diving in here. So I forgot that. Um, so I got put in this really weird situation uh, where I had to make a decision. Uh, I got put in this really weird situation uh, by this girl a, a while back, and. I forgot I mapped out using like one of those boxes things, all of the, all of the potential things I could do and all of the potential responses she might have. And then they're like my best guess of their like corresponding payouts. And then I took a Snapchat of it. So I have the picture right here. So listeners, Neither can we. Oh, but um, I, and, I, and I don't really want you to, but can you, can oh, there's, you a that, that, like, there's a lot of columns. There's a lot of rows to, to this that on, box uh, right there. On the website. The yeah, yeah. And then I, Oh, okay. <laughs> Absolutely not. I want to know but all about like, the payoffs. Tell us I about how like, you determined the payoffs. You just told us payoffs were hard. Well, so they were. So actually what I did is instead of <laughs> – this is helping, you know, to, to make a – like help me decide here. So instead of putting like numbers there, I put letters and then followed it up with like if A oh, is wow. greater than B, then this is that like is smart. my optimal decision that I must go for. So um, yeah, so – you know, it, I can't say it helped, but you know, you could try <laughs> that. Yeah, it looks like right, based on the blurry picture so. we saw, there's a three by three, uh, three by three. Amazing, there were only three options. It seems like there's many options. Yeah. This, well, this situation was. Can, specific, can you read but, you either know, one fine. of your choices, like your choices or her choices, also, without being the, too specific? One of the, uh, payoffs is labeled A, uh, which is <laughs> <laughs> not flattering to either of you. <laughs> Yeah, so maybe I gave them like colloquial <laughs> names here. But I think that's all the detail I'll go in on this. But just the more of the story to, to any listeners out there is this stuff's important. Learn it. And, um, you know, you you might be the ladies' man that I am here with my three by three graph. There really should be a fourth column, which is share game theory strategic with lady. <laughs> that's true. I didn't do that. Uh, yeah, so we've obviously proven that there's a lot of practical uses for game theory, but one thing that we should have mentioned earlier is that there's something called Corneau equilibrium, which is basically just a, a solution of game theory for firms solving profits, um, solving, maximizing profits. And that actually existed pre-John Nash and pre-Von Neumann. It's another example of these things being used before game theory was like formalized. So there are like tons of examples outside of, <laughs> of uh, young people's dating lives that actually involve game theory. But they're not as interesting. No, of course not. Or fun. So I found a YouTube channel in my research for this um, that was called Game Theorists. And I was like, I was so hyped. I was like, there's there's a YouTube channel on game theory. Listeners, maybe maybe it has come across, but I am like kind of game theory enthusiast. Um, and I was like, man, this is going to be so interesting to like dissect regular events with the scope of game theory. And it turned out to be like a discussion of Mario Brothers. It was like a pun, not an actual game theory channel. Oh, Very frustrating. But, I, you know, I feel like... 
people would be far more exciting to realize it was a pun than, than uh, in general than to realize that it was actually talking about game theory. So it seems seems pretty optimal there. Yeah, that's true. They saw them. Are puns... Very sad. Is skill with puns or skill with game theory more helpful in the dating app theme? That'll be the topic of our next podcast. There was, there was a phenomenal pun tweet today, and I don't even like puns, but there's a... There's a feature of the Python programming language called Dunder. I'm not even going to get into the nerdiness behind this. But there, there are things called Dunder somethings. And someone defined a variable called Mifflin. And he tweeted, I've been searching for a week for a joke that, that includes Dunder and Mifflin and includes office fans and pun enthusiasts. And I still haven't figured anything out. But I fall in all three of those camps. I guess maybe not a pun enthusiast, but I enjoy the tweet immensely. And so did at least four other people. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> I'd say that was pretty technical. Um, yeah, before we get too far into puns and discussions of the office any last closing comments on game theory this is definitely an entertaining pod and i hope it was also an informative one yeah we uh we may have veered away from the informative <laughs> but it's better uh, that way let us know listeners was yeah, this uh, too entertaining not enough informative you can tweet at us at yeah, too too informative or too entertaining. We will release a poll. Wait, on what's our what's our Twitter handle again? <laughs> At Syntech Project. Sorry, man. Syntech Project. No, you're good. And I think you can also. <laughs> that was, that was for, that I think nice you can also comment on our website. You definitely can comment on our website via a forum that I call Discus, but appears to be Discuss. <laughs> Pronounce the right way. <laughs> so there you have it. All right. Till next time, guys. All right. That's all we got. Bye, everyone.